tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help so you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, July 26th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird, back in your feeds after a break. Thanks to Glenn Fleischman for filling in for me. And today, a look back at when the Olympics used to give out medals in artistic categories, including the designing of Olympic medals, and the case for why they should bring that back this year in particular. Plus, some more background on how the wildfires on the West Coast of Canada and the U.S. are affecting weather and health all the way in New York City and beyond. And the Cleveland baseball team has officially changed their name, something they used to do quite a bit of around the turn of the century. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. The Tokyo Olympic Games officially kicked off at the end of last week, and I feel a bit conflicted about this. The IOC's made a number of calls recently, and historically, that don't exactly jive with my views, and of course, there's the fact that more than half of the Japanese population opposed the Games happening due to concerns about COVID-19. As Wired said, quote, "...the Olympics are one of Earth's great symbols of international cooperation." But this year, the Games are also a mass gathering in the middle of the worst pandemic in a century, where people from nearly every country on Earth will gather in a vast congregate living setting and compete in some close-contact sports, sometimes indoors. What could possibly go wrong? End quote. But the Olympics are proceeding nonetheless, and the athletes who have made it through the many IOC regulations and countless COVID tests are competing for a shot at gold, getting their chance to achieve what they've been working towards their whole lives. And there's a lot of excitement this year with the inclusion of a few new sports, including skateboarding, surfing, and sports climbing. And there was one part of the opening ceremony on Friday that definitely stood out to people. No, not the return of the Tongan flag bearer, or his surprise competitor from Vanuatu, but the live-action miming sprint through the 50 official pictograms representing each Olympic sport. Quoting the official Olympics website, Pictograms were first introduced at the 1964 Tokyo Games as a means of transcending language barriers to communicate information to visitors and participants effectively by using stylized figures. Not only were they used to represent individual sports, but Tokyo also used them to represent services that would help visitors get to where they need to be. 
Designers for these 64 games helped revolutionize the idea of pictograms by creating symbols that could be used non-verbally without confusion. They even helped to create what are now universally used logos to distinguish between gendered toilets. End quote. That last bit blew my mind, because I was originally describing these as like bathroom symbols but playing sports. But it turns out that bathroom symbols are more like Olympic pictograms standing guard for toilets. Wild. Anyways, the speedy performance by a few humans posing as the pictograms in the opening ceremony, specifically it was a Japanese silent comedy act as well as a pantomime duo, had a lot of people online joking that that performance itself, being able to remember and pose as each sports pictogram in order and very quickly, should be a new Olympic sport of its own. And that joke might not actually be so far-fetched. Medals used to be given out for all sorts of athletic and non-athletic feats that may seem strange to us today. In 1924 and 1936, people were actually awarded Olympic medals for designing Olympic medals. This was part of a larger segment of the Olympic Games that existed from 1912 all the way up until 1948, that of artistic competitions alongside the athletic ones. Entrants were able to compete in five categories, architecture, painting, sculpture, literature, and music. There were a few caveats. First, all pieces of art had to be Olympic-themed. Quoting The Atlantic, Artworks were required by official Olympic rules to bear a definite relationship to the Olympic concept. Musical compositions, for example, which glorified a sporting ideal, an athletic competition or an athlete, or which were intended for presentations in connection with sporting festivals, could be entered for review and evaluation by an international jury. Other curious specifications include a 20,000-word limit on literature entries, a category divided into dramatic works, lyrical works, and epic poetry, and a one-hour time allotment for the presentation of each musical work. End quote. And further, the artists had to be amateurs. This was back when no one in the Olympics, artist or athlete, could earn money for their craft. The rules on athletes having to be amateurs wasn't relaxed until the mid to late 20th century, as each athletic event slowly started allowing professionals to enter, in recognition of how tough it was to train to an Olympic standard while holding down a job. That and the Olympics moving more and more away from modern Olympic founder Pierre de Coubertin's vision of basically well-rounded gentlemen competing in fun challenges of the body and mind. And all of that was basically why the artistic events were eventually scrubbed. Since professional artists couldn't enter, the quality of art being submitted was punitively not all that spectacular. Again, as many of us know, it's very difficult to devote time to honing a craft when you can't use it to pay the bills. And judges often withheld medals because none of the submissions were up to snuff. This is also why we don't actually know too much about it. For one, hardly any of the medal winners were people whose names and work we still know and recognize. And two, the events had little impact on either art or the Olympics, so there hasn't been a lot of archival work done to preserve the history. But while the art events were still ongoing, three men won medals for designing Olympic medals. It started in 1924 when Claude Léon Mesco won bronze in the mixed sculpture category for a set of medals depicting wrestling, general athletics, jumping, running, gymnastics, swimming, and aviation. 
They each featured a different animal and then had a small icon at the bottom showing a human engaging in the sport, which look remarkably like those pictograms Japan ended up designing in the 60s. You can see the medals for yourself at the Mental Floss link in the show notes. And no, aviation wasn't exactly an Olympic sport. Medals were occasionally awarded for it as a demonstration sport. Similar to how I mentioned a few weeks ago that alpine climbing used to be awarded occasionally when remarkable feats had recently been accomplished, like attempting to scale Mount Everest. In 1936, metal designing was a category unto itself within the sculpture event. No one was good enough to get the gold that year, but Italian Luciano Mercante won silver and Belgian Josu Dupont won the bronze. Again, there's very little documentation of any of this, I couldn't find any photos of their medals, so the extent to which any of these medals inspired future designs for official Olympic medals is kind of unknown. But with artists previously having received medals for so many different things, including designing medals, maybe we could see medals given out again in the future for more creative accomplishments. Maybe not the human interpretation of the pictograms, but what about the original design of the pictograms themselves? I mean, they're still used every year and are a vital component of international communication at the Games. I'd say that deserves a medal. Or, hey, if we really want to kick it old school and give some medals for medals, this year marks the first time that medals being handed out to winning Olympians are made 100% from recycled consumer goods. Mostly, the old cell phones of Japanese citizens who were encouraged to donate their used electronics for the cause a few years back. Quoting a Washington Post article from 2019 when the medal designs were first revealed, The 5,000 medals that will be awarded at the Games and Paralympics have been crafted entirely from recycled consumer devices. They are the first sustainable medals designed to resemble polished stones in Olympic history, organizers said. The move toward recycling has been underway for some time. Medals at the 2016 Games in Rio de Janeiro contain recycled material, with the silver and bronze medals made from 30% recycled materials, and the organizing committee for the 2010 Vancouver Olympics said a small fraction of its medals were made of recycled circuit boards. Tokyo organizers set out to gather as much as 8 tons of metal to yield the 3 tons needed for the gold, silver, and bronze medals, and collection boxes were set up starting in April 2017. Organizers said that about 32 kilograms, or roughly 70 pounds, of gold was salvaged from 6.2 million mobile phones, with more than 12,000 pounds of silver and bronze recovered, end quote. I think that is pretty cool, and definitely deserving of its own recycled Nokia medal. As you all know, I was off the past two weeks on a bit of mini-summer vacation. I spent the better part of last week driving across the country from New Mexico back home to New York. And it was sunny and hot for most of the trip, with the sun's rays searing into my field of vision for large swaths of the time on the first days of our journey. But on Thursday morning, as we drove out of central Indiana at dawn, our visibility was decidedly different. Even as the sun began to rise, it didn't get that bright. There seemed to be some kind of haze shielding the light. Pretty convenient for driving east into the sunrise, really. But then there was the sun itself. It was huge and bright red. It looked like the landscape of a sci-fi movie, you know, when they imagine a different star or planet hanging low over the horizon of a distant land. Or really, with its clear-cut borders and gradient, almost like one of those retro-striped sun logos. I wasn't checking the news or social media too much while I was on the road, so it wasn't until later that night when I was discussing it with friends that I realized what had happened. 
If you live just about anywhere in the continental US or southern Canada, you probably saw it too. Maybe not at sunrise, but maybe sunset. Or maybe you spotted a red moon. The reason for this phenomena, as I'm sure you've all heard by now, smoke from the wildfires on the west coast. Mostly the bootleg fire in southern Oregon, which is the largest wildfire in the US so far this year and has already destroyed almost 400,000 acres, or the equivalent of half of Rhode Island. Quoting the New York Times, more than 80 large fires are currently burning across 13 American states and many more are active across Canada. Now the effects are being felt thousands of miles from the flames. As the smoke moved eastward across Toronto, New York, and Philadelphia on Tuesday, concentrations of dangerous microscopic air pollution known as PM2.5, because the particles are less than 2.5 microns in diameter, reached highs in the unhealthy range for most of the day. Minnesota was heavily blanketed by smoke from wildfires burning across the Canadian border, with the city of Brainerd and others recording hazardous levels of pollution, the highest designation of concern from the Environmental Protection Agency. Fine particulate matter, which is released during wildfires, and also through the burning of fossil fuels, is dangerous to human health. Breathing high concentrations of PM2.5 can increase the risk of asthma attacks, heart attacks, and strokes. End quote. And still today, the weather forecast here in New York City warned me of poor air quality, with the main pollutant being PM2.5. So that explains the haze that I noticed, but what about the red sun and moon? Quoting New York Magazine's Intelligencer, The sun's red tinge is a result of dense smoke particles in the upper reaches of the atmosphere interacting with sunlight, scattering incoming light into the long wavelengths of red light. Those longer wavelengths ultimately give the sky a reddish-orange tint. End quote. A more subtle version of this reddish-pinkish hue is common this time of year anyways, when the sun is lower in the horizon. And the conversation explains further, in an article published last year, because wildfires are tragically bad enough every year now for this to be an annual occurrence, quote, Soot particles are much larger than air molecules, and are more adept at scattering the yellow, orange, and red wavelengths of sunlight. The enhanced oranges, pinks, and reds during sunset occur when the sun's rays have to travel through more smoke. That happens when the sun is very low near the horizon, rather than when it's directly overhead, hence the fiery sunsets." End quote. And I should add, this bootleg fire in Oregon is really bad. Like, really bad. Generating its own weather bad. As firefighters have worked tirelessly to contain the wildfire, it's exhibited such extreme behavior as growing more than 80 square miles a day, igniting spot fires, creating fire whirls and fire tornadoes, and spawning a cloud called a pyrocumulonimbus that hit an altitude of about 45,000 feet and caused lightning strikes, which as you can imagine are not so helpful to the containment efforts. Why is it all so extreme? because of the sheer amount of heat being pumped out by the fire itself, a result of the severe drought in Oregon and that heat wave the state experienced earlier this summer. Remember the one that literally caused some of their power cables to melt? Yeah, it served to dry out all the vegetation, and as the New York Times puts it, quote, If vegetation is damp, some of the energy from burning is used to evaporate its moisture. If there's no moisture to evaporate, the fire burns hotter. End quote. That heat wave left the vegetation in Oregon as dried out as it usually is at the end of the summer, not at the start. 
So while the red sun and moon was a cool sight to behold for some of us, its cause is a tragic one. It's like any time when we get an unseasonably chilly day in the summer or a warm day in the winter. Kind of fun at first, until you remember the reason for it. And if you were concerned about breathing in any of the smoke, Roseanne Coman, an atmospheric scientist at Columbia University, assured the New York Times that N95 masks were indeed designed to capture PM2.5. So just another reason not to ditch your mask just yet. In case you missed it over the weekend, here's some news that broke on Friday. The Cleveland Major League Baseball team has officially changed their name from Indians to Guardians. The change was announced in a video narrated by longtime fan Tom Hanks, who said, quote, It's always been Cleveland. That's the best part of our name. And now it's time to unite as one family, one community, to build the next era for this team and this city. End quote. And quoting the Washington Post, the name and logo are inspired by the Hope Memorial Bridge, which leads to Progressive Field and is home to massive stone statues known as the Guardians of Traffic. The idea, according to information about the name change offered on the team's website, is to pay homage to the guardians of traffic watching over the city. As Hanks noted in the video the team released, the goal is to preserve Cleveland's baseball tradition and the team's place in the city. End quote. Of course, there's predictably been a bit of backlash, but most people are applauding the change, with some maybe disappointed it wasn't changed to something cooler, although I'd say picking something that promoted local pride and resiliency was a pretty safe move. And while the team has had their former name for just over a century, it's not their original name. Since the franchise's founding as a minor league team in 1894, they've been called many names including the Rustlers, the Lakeshores, the Bluebirds or the Blues, the Naps or the Napoleons, and the Spiders. Quoting Indian Country Today, According to Cleveland baseball history, the Indian's name was chosen in 1915 to honor Louis Sokolix of the Penobscot tribe who played for the then-Cleveland Spiders in 1897. Joe Posnansky of NBC Sports, however, found in 2014 that the name was actually the creation of a group of sports writers in 1915. Looking to renew fan interest in the poorly performing Cleveland Naps, sports writers at the Cleveland Plain Dealer and other newspapers created a nomenclature committee and sponsored a contest in which fans could choose a new name for the team. The Sokolexis story was entirely untrue, a bit of state-funded propaganda to conceal the obvious fact the Cleveland team was named the Indians only to capitalize on the many racist cliches that could be used to promote the team. It was glorious opportunity for hilarious Native American jokes and race-specific cliches and insults that fit well in headlines, Posnansky wrote, end quote. Amanda Blackhorse of the Diné Nation, and who has long fought against native-themed mascots, told Indian Country Today, quote, This victory belongs to the native people and organizations within Cleveland who have been fighting this issue for decades. Although this change should have happened decades ago, I hope other franchises like the Kansas City team and the Atlanta team can learn from this and move away from native mascots and slur names, end quote. The Cleveland Guardians will be retaining their team colors of red, white, and navy, and the full changeover will debut at the start of the 2022 season.
So back in June, I told you about some of the youngest Olympians headed to Tokyo this year. 12-year-olds Sky Brown from the UK and Kokono Hiraki from Japan, who will be competing in the park category of skateboarding. Well, earlier today was the final for street skateboarding, and the top two winners ended up being 13-year-old Momiji Nishia from Japan, who won gold, and 13-year-old Reisa Liao from Brazil, who won the silver. Teenage girls are absolutely crushing it at the Olympics this year, and I think it's awesome. Can't wait to watch them take over the world. Anyways, it is great to be back. Huge thank you to Glenn Fleischman for taking over while I was away. I was tuning in while I was on the road, and I particularly enjoyed his segments about the standardization of paper sizes, more interesting than it sounds like, the explainer on all of those seed packets that people mysteriously got from China in 2020, and the history of New Coke. If you missed any of those, definitely go back and give him a listen, and be sure to follow Glenn on Twitter to keep up with his other work. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.